Need parts? O'Reilly Auto Parts has parts. Need them fast? We've got fast. No matter what you need, we have thousands of professional parts people doing their part to make sure you have it. Product availability. Just one part that makes O'Reilly stand apart. The professional parts people. Oh, 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 O'Reilly. Auto Parts. Hello, everyone. Um, my name is Otar Makarashvili, and I am a program director here at Boulder Giving. So excited that you're joining us today for a conversation about creative approaches to giving. I know that it's end of July, and everyone's in vacation mode and a little bit more relaxed than usual, so we appreciate you taking the time to be with us today. Actually, we have received an overwhelming response for this conversation, and the webinar has been sold out for almost a week, with people still on the wait list. Unfortunately, our webinar platform forces us to limit the number of participants, but we are looking into that as the demand grows. We are very excited to be hosting this webinar in partnership with Kindle Projects in the Philanthropy Initiative, and I'm joined today by Ariane Schaeffer, Communications Director at Kindle Project, and Laura Lesher, Consultant at Kindle Project. Uh, you will hear from them in a little bit. We know that some indie philanthropy practices have been around for decades, while others are still emerging in real time, you know, from crowdfunding to giving circles to community-based decisions to funding startups. The landscape of indie philanthropy is indeed varied and very, very exciting. On this call, we'll explore some of the ways to get started, discuss some of the most unique, accessible, successful, and collaborative approaches to creating change, and also share diverse stories from innovative world givers who practice indie philanthropy. Um, before I let Laura and Ariane introduce themselves and tell you a little bit more about their wonderful initiative, I just want to say a few words about Boulder Giving and why we chose this topic. Um, as you know, the primary mission of Boulder Giving is to inspire more people to give to their full lifetime potential. And we primarily do that through donor storytelling, webinars like this, and many other initiatives. You can find more about our work by going to our website at bouldergiving.org. Our motto is give more, risk more, and inspire more. And I feel like all those three short but very powerful sentences fit into the category of creative, or as my speakers would call it, indie philanthropy. Um, I'm also happy to report that our work is now global in that we work with several local partners in southeastern Europe to help them promote and establish the culture of individual giving in the region. And I'm happy to see some of our partners joining us on this call today. Hello from across the Atlantic. And one final thing I will say before I let my speakers talk is that the Q&A session, section will be open throughout the session, and I encourage you to send us your questions um, right away, and we'll get to as many as we possibly can. Also note that all your questions are totally anonymous and only visible to me and uh, Laura and Ariane, so feel free to share as you please. This session will also be recorded, and we'll send a follow-up email to everyone with the recording and plus some of the resources that are going to be mentioned on this call. So now, without further ado, um, I'm going to ask um, Laura and Ariane to tell us a little bit about themselves, the Kindle Project, the Indie Philanthropy Initiative, how did you get started, and what has the response been like? Thanks, Otar. Hi, everyone. I'm Ariane Schaffer. Welcome to my home in Toronto. Um, I work from home, so here we are. I'm so excited to be on this webinar today. I love working with Laura and with Boulder Giving and with Otar. It's been so much fun to plan this session for you all, and I'm so thrilled with the response. So um, like Otar said, I'm the communications director for Kindle Project. This August will be my fifth year anniversary working with Kindle, which is really exciting. And before that, my professional background was 
not in philanthropy. It was in uh, interfaith education and chaplaincy and documentary film and working with young women. So it was pretty varied. And in the past five years, there's been this swell of excitement in me to learn about philanthropy, to become embedded in it, and to really um, be engaged with this field in a really different way. So I've been so excited by my work at Kindle. And like I said, I'm based in Toronto, where I'm also a storyteller when I'm not doing indie philanthropy and working at Kindle Project. Laura, do you want to introduce yourself? Okay, sure. Hi, everyone. Let's see. My name is Laura Lesher. I've been involved, I'd say professionally in philanthropy and in social investing for about 20 years. And it seems like it's always been in ways that are pushing the edges of what's acceptable or possible in those fields. So that's my, that's my interest and my love. And I've been an advisor to Kindle Project since it began, uh, I think it was in 2008. And I've been having a lot of fun being part of the team that's launching the Indie Philanthropy Initiative into the world. And my um, my philanthropy background is quite varied, but I did co-found two different funding organizations. One was called Changemakers Fund that started in the late 90s, and then in 2006, APOC Fund. And um, I lived in San Francisco for 20 years during that whole time, and then a few years ago I moved to Ashland, Oregon, so that's where I am today in my home office. And um, my work these days is mostly doing coaching and advising work with both individuals and organizations that are dedicated to inner and outer transformation. Thanks, Laura. Um, All right, so I'll tell you just quickly a little bit about Kindle Project. So like Laura said, we started in 2008, and it was co-founded by two friends, uh, Sadaf Cameron, who's our current director, and Kate Kostler-Lernberger, and they were close friends that really wanted to do something different in the world. They had a lot of vision and really wanted to contribute in a different way. So they started Kindle Project, and um, Otar gave his beautiful tagline of what Boulder Giving does, and ours is, is that we really try and support wild solutions by unusual suspects in the attempt to move mountains. So we have big goals, like you all at Boulder Giving, that we try and accomplish in a couple different ways. Um, we have our grant-making programs, which are, you know, the heart of Kindle in a lot of ways and what we really love and what we're excited about and giving to these risk-takers and these mountain movers. And also we have the Indie Philanthropy Initiative, which I'm going to tell you about in a moment. So Kindle is based in Santa Fe, but as you now know, we're very virtual. We're here online in different countries and different spaces. I live in Toronto. Laura is in Ashland. Sadaf is based in New Mexico. But we have um, advisors, committee members, and parts of our Kindle community that are based all around the United States. And so indie philanthropy, that's what we're here to talk about today. And a couple years ago, we began to really reflect on the feedback that we were getting from our grantee community. They were, We were hearing from them that they were very interested in hearing about other funders who were also creative and relationship-based. And at the same time, We also knew from our colleagues that there were many other innovative funding organizations that were giving in outside-the-box ways, and we heard from them that they felt somewhat isolated in their work. So we had these two bits of feedback that we really kind of took in, and we also knew that there were so many of us actively working on changing the traditional narrative of philanthropy, but we didn't have any kind of common place or a common name to connect under. So this is how we came up with the idea for the Indie Philanthropy Initiative. And the Indie Philanthropy site, which we'll send you the links to, it's indiephilanthropy.org, is the first donor education tool of its kind. And we did a lot of research, and we found out that it really is kind of this special place that acts as a nexus point and a gathering space for a growing movement of outside-the-box philanthropic practices and people. And so since we launched the site in October, which is also how we launched the initiative, 
Um, we've had the support of several core partners, Boulder Giving being one of them, and also Resource Generation. And they're all natural allies in this movement. And these organizations and these core partners have been educating their donor communities for a long time with a lot of these familiar indie philanthropy practices and principles. So we've had this great group that helped us create the initiative. And the response since October has been really exciting. We have on the site over 30 stories from indie philanthropists. So it's them in their fields working on their own indie philanthropy methods and how, and they tell us the stories of the successes, the challenges, and how they came to practice philanthropy in that way. Um, since we've launched, we've also had over 10,000 visitors to the site. We love engaging in person. So as you know, we're so virtual, but it also means that sometimes we get a little bit isolated in our work. And so showing up at conferences and philanthropic gatherings is always really exciting for us. And we've had a great opportunity to give indie philanthropy workshops twice at the Edge Funders Alliance um, annual retreat and once at the Environmental Grantmakers Association retreat last year. So for us being in person in these gatherings is a really important way for us to network and build ideas in these in the field. And on that sort of relational person-to-person -person level, we're also looking at growing um, an indie philanthropy peer learning community. So we put out a survey recently to hear from the philanthropic community of asking, what do you need from the initiative and how can we serve you? And so we're looking at building this peer learning community up in the next you know, six months, year, and seeing how it's going to go to really be an experiment and co-creation together so that the initiative can serve the needs of the community. Great. Thank you, Laura. Do you have anything to add to that? No, sounds good. Wonderful. Thank you both. And I just want to say that I imagine there are a lot of people on this call who may be new or just embracing the idea of more creative approaches to giving. And the question I want to ask you both is, why is indie philanthropy, why is this creative philanthropy important today? Mm, I'll take that one. Sure. Um, first, I'll just say a couple more things about what indie philanthropy is, since there are so many new people. And um, what we mean is really indie philanthropy is just a common name for a wide range of funding approaches that are offering creative and positive disruption to the status quo of funding. And it's not that indie philanthropy is in opposition to mainstream philanthropy, but it's about adding really much needed diversity and creativity to the field. And so indie philanthropists look closely at not just what's getting funded, but also who's making decisions and how the funding is done. And I guess to say it another way, we care a lot about philanthropic culture and we want the way that we give to really mirror the world that we seek, the healthier world that we seek. And so why is it important? I would say um, I don't need to spell it out for everyone here, the context that we're living in with massive social and environmental challenges. Um, we feel like there's a huge need for bold alternatives to the status quo and way more creative solutions. So traditional philanthropy sometimes falls short in addressing these massive challenges that we're facing. And in mainstream philanthropy, certain types of organizations and certain types of work get the lion's share of the funding and it leaves out really important grassroots organizations and other people working for systemic change. So indie philanthropy is helping break open that funding space and give more power, more voice to a wider, more diverse array of folks who are doing this important work in the world. And our experience is that when power is equalized in that way, there's really more opportunities to deepen and transform our relationships, our communities, our systems, and what, you know, so many of the problems we're facing can seem so impossible to, to solve, to change. And in my experience, 
things start to feel more possible when we're working together in this way. So that's, I'd say, why it's important. Great. Thank you for that. Ariane, do you have anything yet to that? I don't. I mean, I have lots to say, but I'm going to save it. <laughs> sure. Uh, we have plenty of time left. Um, so who do you think qualifies as indie philanthropist? What is the well, typical profile of an indie philanthropist? Yeah. Typical profile, right. Well, I actually, I love this question um, sure. because I think that, the you know, we feel that the field is really, really diverse and there's no one way to be an indie philanthropist. And we're certainly not here to judge of who qualifies to be a part of it. But we have noticed that there are qualities that many indie philanthropists seem to embody. And so there's, you know, this growing list of um, qualities that I think can reflect back on, you know, how to answer that question of who is an indie philanthropist. It's something we think about a lot and talk about a lot. So many indie philanthropists are funding innovation that's often overlooked by mainstream funders. And so as indie philanthropists, we really seek that out and appreciate experimental work. We're also risk-taking in our funding, and our funding also supports risk-takers. So that's a really important part because we see risk-takers as the ones who are often truly shifting cultures and systems. We also notice that indie philanthropists really welcome failure as a part of the learning process. And many of us believe in the importance of this kind of deeper collaboration to work consciously to reduce this kind of traditional funder-grantee power imbalance. And when we share some examples later, you're going to be hearing more about how that can happen in practical ways, which I think is really exciting. And as a deep philanthropist, we're also really committed to doing the inner work. Um, Laura mentioned that briefly, of clarifying sort of our deepest internal values, our real motivations, what's happening on the insides, our highest intentions, you know, so that our outer work and our funding um, can be honest, aligned, and successful with what's happening inside. And we also prioritize, like, directing dollars to those working on addressing the causes of injustice, not just the symptoms. So that's sort of a, I mean, a long answer to your short question, but there is no short answer. It's, it's a growing movement, and we're collecting these qualities all the time. Yeah, um, I absolutely agree. Thanks for that. And so the next question would be, uh, on your website, you've outlined nine different models of creative or indie philanthropy, Right. And I will ask you to go through those nine. And for the participants on this call, um, we understand that this session will be informational heavy. We'll, sh we'll be sharing a lot. But worry not, we'll be sending you a follow-up email with the slides and the uh, resources that were mentioned on this call along with the recording. So uh, we actually have a little PowerPoint here um, outlining all the nine different models. So why don't you two get started? <laughs> all right, let's see. Sure. Okay, it works. Perfect. Um, yeah, actually, Otar, thank you. You know, when we originally decided to do this webinar, it was just going to be us chatting, and then we saw how many new people that none of us know signed up, and we felt like it was really important to actually, uh, we won't talk about every model, but just to give some some background. So thanks, Otar. I'm glad we're doing it this way. And, um, you know, on the IndiePhilanthropy.org website, there are detailed descriptions of each of these say strategies, methods, approaches to funding, uh, to funding. And, you know, this is such a broad field. This was our best attempt at finding nine, you know, nine categories that cover a lot of these different ways of funding. And so, um, let's see, there are a lot of bold givers who are involved in indie philanthropy. So what we're actually going to do is, as we talk about some of these, we're going to give examples of bold givers whose stories are up on the Boulder Giving website or are soon to be 
arriving there. So, um, Ariane, why don't I'm going to flip the slide here. Yeah. Why don't you take this first one? Sure. So the first indie philanthropy method that we want to chat about is partnerships. So in the indie philanthropy context, partnerships basically means that you're collaborating with other organizations to make grants or support other philanthropic activities. And this is kind of our kitchen sink method, and it covers a lot of different approaches. So just to simplify, I'm just going to quickly mention three different ways that partnerships can work. So one is that you can, you know, you're funding another philanthropic entity that would do work on your behalf. So you're outsourcing some of your work in this kind of partnership. It can allow you to regrant money in an area that another organization has expertise in, or you can use money to provide technical assistance to your grantees. Um, the second kind of partnership that we're looking at is collaborating with other funders. So to create a joint funding strategy or even a docket to educate and inspire each other to fund something specific or to pool money um, for a specific shared mission. Oh, there's our little slides. Yeah. Sorry, I was on the slides. I forgot. Okay. Me too. It's okay. <laughs> um, the third kind of partnership is this is the idea of offering long-term sustained funding and other support to a specific set of grantees or grantee partners. So these are three different kinds of partnerships that we're looking at. And uh, one example that I want to give is the International Development Exchange, or IDEX. They started over 30 years ago with a community-to-community -community structure. So they're an example of that third kind of partnership that I just mentioned. They offer long-term su support to specific grantees. And they have a community of supporters in the U.S. that backs and directly assists organizations in the global south, and they focus their work on food sovereignty, alternative economies, and climate justice. And they purposefully set up their structure in this way as a direct contrast to the top-down model of big aid. Um, they saw that traditional international development was importing solutions from the global north that weren't relevant or effective for creating systems change in the global south, and money was not reaching the people who actually needed it. And so because of that, they formed a very strong partnership with local grassroots groups. They work in Asia, Africa, and Latin America, and they provide long-term funding for their work. And so IDEX is a story that's featured on the Indie Philanthropy site, and actually just a little exciting announcement hot off the presses. About an hour ago, um, Kindle Project um, and the Indie Philanthropy Initiative just had an article published on Huffington Post that features a really exciting interview that we did with IDEX about um, their work in Nepal. So I'm gonna, we'll send that link out as well um, with after the webinar. And I wanted to also mention that there's a bolder, there's a bold giver story coming soon from a board member of IDEX um, named Sasha Rabsey. So we'll look out for that as well, which we're excited about. And the other example of partnerships that I wanted to give is Solidaire. So they're an example of funders partnering, like that second structure I mentioned. They're a community of people with wealth, and they align their resources with movements that promote dignity, justice, and equality. So their members um, do a portion of their funding collabority, like in a giving circle, which we're going to talk about in a little bit. But they pool their smaller contributions together to be able to make larger combined contributions to particular organizations. But their members also do giving individually, and they use this listserv and other avenues to share what they're learning and what they funded and to solicit feedback and ideas from the rest of the community. So by having this very smart communication infrastructure established, as well as these deep trusting relationships that they've built over time, Solidaire is able to respond rapidly and effectively when timely opportunities or movement moments come, up, come about. So like Occupy Wall Street or Black Lives Matter or spontaneous actions, you know, associated with the People's Climate March. 
Solidaire is a really kind of exciting model to look at. Their story is also featured on our site. Um, it was written by Leah Hunt Hendricks, who I know also gave a webinar recently with Bolter Giving. And our good friend and collaborator Jason Franklin, the former ED of Bolter Giving, is also a part of Solidaire. So I wanted to mention that as well. Sorry, Arian, can I quickly say something? Somebody tried to um, raise um, his hand, and unfortunately we don't allow, we don't have the raise hand option for this webinar. If you have a question, make sure you type it in the Q&A box below. All right? Thank you. Nice. Arian, go ahead. Sure. Yeah. Okay, so I'll talk about community-based decision-making, and Arian, will you do the slides? Yeah, I got you. For this? <laughs> okay. So with this method, this is really about community members either joining your funding decision-making team or being given full power of what to fund. And the word community can mean, you know, any kind of community. So it could be geographic, like a municipality or a region of a country. It could be thematic, like environmental justice or the arts community. Um, or it could be like an identity group. So lesbian, gay, bisexual, transgender, QI, <laughs> that whole one, uh, that community. Um, so a few of the many benefits are you can enable the true experts, so the people who are living in a community's challenges every day to direct funds to what's most effective and important. Um, and you can tap into the amazing talents in diverse communities, which really helps build the leadership capacity within the community which is an additional contribution beyond your grant-making dollars and actually something that will last long after you're done funding there. And it also can help you navigate community landmines because many of us have learned that when we fund in a community, we change the power dynamics there. And so having guides that really help you understand the history, culture, and personalities of what's going on there can help you avoid major problems down the line. And then also really it's about facilitating the building of strong and creative relationships between people who rarely sit together and make decisions, which is the community power holders and the financial power holders. And, you know, in leveling the playing field that way, there's a lot more room for creativity and genius to emerge from people across all income levels and life experiences. And that creates opportunities for real transformation, just even through the deepening of personal relationships that happen through that. So, you know, there are hundreds of funders who employ some form of community-based decision-making, whether it's private foundations who have activists on their boards or public foundations that have community-led grant-making committees or more informal projects. So I'm going to um, mention just a couple bold givers here. Um, Karen Pittleman, whose story is up on the Boulder Giving website, so she's the co-founder of the Trans Justice Funding Project, which is a community-led funding initiative that supports grassroots trans justice groups run by and for transgender and gender non-conforming people. And Karen and her co-founders started this because there's almost no funding for this kind of work, especially that's actually led by trans people or is grassroots and local work, which is exclusively what this project funds. And so they have a really simple, quick grants process that's led by an experienced activist um, grant panel, and all the grants they made are for uh, unrestricted general support. So that's one cool example. And then um, also Margot Siegel, who's got a forthcoming Boulder Giving story, um, was a co-founder of the Hummingbird Collective, which emerged out of the new anti-immigrant legislation in Arizona a few years ago, which you may remember criminalized the act of being in the U.S. without papers and legalized racial profiling in that state. 
And so Hummingbird was organized by people from um, seven grassroots organizations along with six young people with wealth, and they created this shared decision-making process that centered on the voices of those most directly impacted by the injustice by giving the activists a plus one vote for grant-making decisions. And then the donors um, also took responsibility for logistics and fundraising, which, of course, freed up the activists' time to do their work in the community. So those are two um, bolder, bold giver examples. Great. All right. I'm up next with spending down. Um, spending down is a term that's most often used for endowed foundations. And so this indie philanthropy approach means that you're limiting the lifespan of your foundation by spending your capital faster than you replenish it, either through investment returns or additional contributions. And we're seeing that spending down has become this really powerful innovation in funding, challenging the traditional wisdoms that foundations should operate in perpetuity. So spending down is also sometimes called spending out or sunsetting, or as Quixote Foundation, who shared their story on our site, they call it spending up. So there's lots of different linguistic ways to play with um, with this method. And somebody, a foundation might choose to spend down for a variety of reasons. So it could include to leverage a window of opportunity, an urgency. So you may believe that we live in this critical time in history, and this may be the moment to give a cause everything you have and leave nothing on the table. You might also choose to spend down because it can help align your money with your values, a little bit like what we talked about earlier, those qualities of an indie philanthropist. So if your philanthropic assets are in financial investments with dubious social benefits, you may actually be fueling the problems that your funding is trying to curb. So by moving money out of financial markets and into the hands of values-aligned organizations, you put it to work in service of your mission and your communities. And lastly, spending down can also really help with community self-determination. So some foundations choose to spend down by transferring their assets to community-led institutions, which puts money at the and the decision-making power in the hands of the grassroots leaders to distribute to their own communities. So a couple examples of spending down, um, again, connected to a bold giver, is Chorus Foundation. So the Chorus Foundation focuses on climate change, and given the urgency of this issue, the, the founder concluded that it would be irresponsible not to move resources as quickly as possible. So they decided for them that a 10-year spend down would allow them to make good, informed goals and decisions and accomplish their work quickly and effectively. So Farhad Ibrahimi, who's a friend of ours, a great co-collaborator and co-conspirator, also a bold giver, is the founder of Course Foundation, um, and he's featured on the Boulder Giving site. And there he also talks about how part of the power in spending down is committing to long-term multi-year grants. And then I guess I'll share about the Burton Mary Meyer Foundation. So Barbara Meyer started this as a small family foundation in the 90s, and she's a bold giver also. And um, she had some stock in UPS that she used to start this foundation. And um, after a number of years of operating, she and her board were exploring whether there was a better way to carry out their mission of funding grassroots social justice work in the U.S. South. And they came up with the idea of turning over the foundation's assets to leaders from within the communities they were funding. And so they invited 18 grassroots leaders from across that region to start a dialogue about how to do this. And it took several years and lots of twists and turns, um, as you might imagine, and bringing together a diverse community of people to really explore how to deploy resources in a community. But they started a new public foundation called the Southern Partners Fund. And basically for every dollar that Southern Partners Fund raised, 
the uh, family foundation would match it and until all of its $18 million was transferred and then they closed their doors. I'll just quickly say it's not on the slide, but um, another bold giver who's got a great story is Carol Newell and the Enswell Foundation um, up in British Columbia. And she spent down her foundation both um, through philanthropic grants, but also through targeted investments in that region. So that's a great story that's up there, too. Great. And I also just want to say quickly that in our follow-up email, we'll be sending the links to all the bold giver profiles that were mentioned on this call. So make sure you read those. They're really fascinating. Awesome. Back to you. (laughs) So um, funding individuals. Okay, well, this one's probably pretty obvious. It just means you give money to individuals instead of organizations. And you can do that directly or by supporting an organization that already has a program like an incubator type of program or fellowships. Um, And also backing crowdfunding campaigns that are organized by an individual is another way to engage with this. So lots of different benefits of funding individuals. And um, Ariane, will you do the slides for this? Um, So first of all, you can diversify the kind of work that you can support. So you know, below the surface of this vast nonprofit landscape that we have, there are thousands more informal networks and activities that actually need capital. And um, some of the most innovative work going on is happening outside of that 501c3 structure. So funding individuals allows you to reach, you know, the kind of cutting edge visionaries and innovators, writers, artists, people who aren't affiliated with an organization. And then also there's a lot of flexibility. There's so many ways you can do this. So you could you know, give an award to honor someone's past work or pay for a vacation or a sabbatical for a leader to recharge. You could fund tuition for skills advancement or, um, you know, give money to an individual who's actually representing an organization, like taking responsibility for an informal organization. And so the example I want to give here is um, the Pollination Project and Ari Nessel, who is a bold giver. His story is coming soon, I think, on the site. And so he's the founder and funder of the Pollination Project. And I actually saw Elisa Hauser's name on the list. Hi, Elisa. Elisa's the executive director of the Pollination Project. So this is a very unique organization that actually incorporates multiple indie methods. Um, So first of all, they direct money only to individuals or small informal groups, but not to established organizations. And then they also offer micro-grants of $1,000 to fund early-stage projects, which is Um, You know, most often they're the very first source of funding for a new idea or project. Um, They fund a really diverse array of endeavors across different sectors, and they actually make a grant every single day. So 365 days a year, they make a grant. And um, this is the idea of pollination philanthropy. It's like spreading the seeds around and cross-pollinating, and they fully expect that some of these projects aren't going to make it. They might fail, and some will take root. And so that's that's their creative approach to this. And then they also have several dozen community-based volunteers who review all the applications and decide what to fund in the areas where they have direct experience and expertise. Um, okay, Kindle Projects make, Makers Muse is on there too, so I'll just say really quickly, um, this is an awards program. So, so Kindle Project makes one-time awards of, I think, between five and 14,000 to artists working in various mediums. And there's no application process, no reporting required. Uh, Past awardees get to nominate future potential recipients. And 
it's an award that honors an individual for the work they're already doing. So there's no strings attached. There's no, you have to do this and report back on it. Um, and so I think Kindle Project has really seen how powerfully this type of work can ripple out. Just that simple act of recognizing and uplifting one artist or a group of artists' work um, can make a huge difference. It's tremendous. Sorry, I, I, I love our Makers Muse program, and we can also send along a link if you like to some of that. I mean, I'm, I'm biased because I'm in it, but it's it really does have this major impact. Um, all right. Thank you. Giving circles is what I want to chat about next. So given, when you're part of a giving circle, you pool the funds you have or that you raise with others to give collectively. So you meet with your colleagues to jointly select grantees that will receive your pooled funds. But it sounds very simple, and it is, but there's so many different ways that giving circles can look. So some are comprised only of funders that are giving equal or varying amounts, and some are a mix of funders and non-funders who may be bringing other assets to the table like expertise. And sometimes members are raising the funds the circle will give away. And another way that giving circles can look is that they can operate under a particular identity group. So a good example of that is the nearly 40 giving circles that are part of the Asian American Pacific Islanders Giving Network. Their story is also featured on the Indie Philanthropy site. And others intentionally cross-pollinate, involving people of different identities and backgrounds. And another variable of giving circles is what the participants do together. That can be anything from informally choosing grantees together to engaging really in a much more in-depth strategy learning process, working directly with issues of race, class, gender, and power. So there's lots of ways giving circles can look. And there's, because of that, also so many benefits that they have. And I'll just mention a few here. One is that giving circles can really help to build community. They provide this very unique opportunity for people with different backgrounds to build strong bonds. They also help break through that isolation we've mentioned a couple times that is often felt by individual funders doing their work alone. So that's a really important piece of it, I think, that collaboration kind of builds that movement. Um, giving circles can also help to reach hard to find grantees. So researching and vetting lesser known groups can be really time consuming. And with giving circles, members can each engage in researching these issues making that capacity of the circle a little more freed up. And giving circles can also allow you to pool knowledge, and that really just accelerates the learning of the topic that you're interested in. So the more minds and hearts and people that are involved in discussing a strategy and sharing information, it becomes a huge asset to the giving process, really. So one example I want to talk about um, is the Social Justice Fund Northwest, and they have a particular kind of giving circle that they call giving projects. So for them, each giving project is a cross-class, multiracial group of about 20 to 25 people who all commit to engaging in a six-month process where they build community with one another. And everybody involved makes a gift at a level that is personally meaningful to them. They develop this shared analysis of social justice issues, and they fundraise from their own networks to make strategic grants for social change. It's a really smart model, and it's really allowed them to democratize the grant-making process and allows for every donor, no matter their background or their level of giving, to be a part of these community solutions. So I, I love that example. Their story on our site is great. And two related bold givers are Burke Stansbury. Um, his bold giver, bold giver story is coming soon also. And one that's already up on the site is by Jessen Hutchinson Quillian. I hope I said your name right. 
Um, so that's an example of the Social Justice Fund Northwest and their really innovative uh, giving circle model, their giving project model. All right. We're doing great, team. Move Thanks to the next slide. Perfect. Sure. Uh, I just want to remind everyone to keep sending questions. There will be a time for the Q&A at the end of the call. But Thanks, back Delta. to you. Sure. Okay. All right. So flow funding. Flow funding is an example we threw in the mix. We don't yet have an example of a bold giver who is featured on the site using flow funding. So if you're listening and you are a bold giver and you use flow funding, let us know. Let OTAR know. We're really excited about this indie philanthropy method, and we've had a lot of great feedback about it. People seem to get really excited about it, and I understand why. But now I'll tell you what it is. So flow funding is a model of giving where the donor entrusts a designated pot of money to a flow funder to distribute as they wish. And a flow funder can be an individual or it can be an organization, but the important part here is that the funding decisions are not made collectively. They're made by one individual or organization. So generally with flow funding, there's no application process. Gifts just flow spontaneously and they are responding to timely opportunities. There's a lot of gut instinct often involved in flow funding. And there's a lot of benefits to flow funding and I'll just mention a couple here. One is that it can really help you support critical work at just the right time. Timing is a big part of it. So those who you select as flow funders are often in a unique position to identify the key players or windows of opportunity in their communities and respond accordingly. And flow funding can also allow you to direct your money to the people, community, and projects that you wouldn't have found on your own. So you're really building that trust with that flow funder. And as a, you know, a really sweet point in it, it can also help reduce administration. So it requires very little paperwork and no proposal. So this type of giving is very free. It frees you up and your flow funders um, and the grantees get to focus their work, their time on the work that matters most to them. And it can also invite you to expand your vision. So if you have a strong attachment or a particular outcome or goal, a flow fund may challenge you to be a little bit more flexible with your vision and your mission. And flow funding is so much about trust and intuition. And like I said, that kind of gut instinct and allowing for vision and purpose to really emerge in the flow funders themselves. It builds a lot of leadership that way. Okay. Okay. So I'll mention the flow fund circle. And actually I'll say a, a question has come in that I would just caught my eye about the importance of really acknowledging the forerunners of indie philanthropy that, you know, when I first got in philanthropy many years ago, um, groups like the National Network of Grantmakers were, um, that's where a lot of us doing indie philanthropy got together, but that organization no longer exists. So um, Global Fund for Women, Threshold Foundation, Edge Funders Alliance, there's a number of organizations that have been um, the place where people practicing outside the box funding have been gathering for many years. And so just... Um, you know, in acknowledgement of that, we can't talk about flow funding without mentioning Marianne Rockefeller Weber, who we think of as the founding mother of flow funding. And she developed this model 25 years ago during a break that she was taking from working in a more traditional philanthropic setting. And um, she was revising her will and came up with the idea of letting the people she had previously supported give away the money left in her estate after she was gone. But she actually loved the idea so much that she didn't want to wait until she had died to get it started. So she developed a model where she would select individuals who were activists and healers and artists and visionaries of all kinds to become flow funders. And each of them would be given $60,000 to distribute over usually three years. 
And the flow funders were empowered to give spontaneously with no application process. And um, so this model that Ariane just described really took off internationally, and it's still you know, being used in lots of ways. We certainly used it in APOC Fund, um, and Kindle Project has as well. Yeah, I'll just say one quick sentence about that because I really want to hear some questions from everybody who's on the call. So I'm going to skip over Kindle Project a little bit, but we've been using Flow Fund since we started in 2008. And um, for us, it's a way, because we're such a small team, we don't accept unsolicited proposals. It's a really creative way for us to engage um, with our grantees, with the community, to build trust, to break down that uh, you know, power funder grantee power imbalance and really put trust in the community and put decision making power within our community of grantees so that they can flow that out to their communities and create bigger impact. Cool. We were going to talk about in the investing. So I think maybe um, just to say super briefly, even though investing is not a giving, um, we felt it's essential to include something about this within the framework of indie philanthropy because upwards of 95% of the resources that are devoted to philanthropic activities at any time are actually invested, not being given. So I think all I'll say is indie investing is sort of like one of the leading, it's one of the edges of impact investing that's really looking at divesting from um, you know, traditional capital markets and putting an emphasis on um, things that are truly aligned with your philanthropic mission, generating products and services that actually offer solutions to problems that are adding value to people in the planet and communities, and whenever possible, involve local communities in their governments, go governance and ownership structures. And so I'll just say there are two bold givers. Um, let's see, I'm going to flip this slide. Uh, two bold givers, I just want to say really quickly, Brendan Martin started an organization called The Working World, which operates as a revolving loan fund to support worker cooperatives. And um, so they help design, fund, and carry out these um, projects, and they only require the cooperatives to pay back when the revenues, you know, when they make revenues from that investment, and then it goes into a revolving loan fund. And then also just quickly, Margot Siegel, who I mentioned earlier, um, helped with some other members of Resource Generation start a project called Regenerative Finance. And they are seeking to directly support on-the-ground, movement-led, community-controlled, localized um, economy projects. So that's all I'll say. <laughs> I think we're done then with the slide. Great. Well, thank you both so much for a very comprehensive overview of the different models of indie philanthropy. And hopefully we gave people on this call a lot to think about um, in terms of how they approach their giving. And I'm going to open up the Q&A. We're getting to the Q&A section of the call now. So the first question that Michael asks is, is indie philanthropy for everyone, and how does an average individual funder get started? Where does one find inspiration to be an indie philanthropist? It's a great question. Thank you. Good question. Yeah. Um, a lot of questions in one. Okay, maybe I'll take that first little bit. Laura, is that all right? Yeah. I like this question. Is any philanthropy for everyone? Um, you know, it's similar to that question of who qualifies as an indie philanthropist. So, you know, for us, I really think that indie philanthropy is for anybody who is up for answering these deeper questions. Indie philanthropy is for people who are really ex interested in experimenting, you know, to find out what works for them and their organization and their mission. But if you're attached to the status quo, if you're unwilling to be flexible and creative, it might not be a fit, you know? 
Um, but it is, as you know, I hope we've shown throughout the past almost hour that indie philanthropy is quite flexible and malleable. And so I think it's also important here to say that what we've shared and the resources that we've created on the site, these are not static. They're not fixed. There's new indie philanthropy methods that we don't even know about that are emerging all the time and those that have been around for decades. So they're all part of this malleable moving um, community of practice and movement that we're noticing that's in indie philanthropy. So it's it can be made your own if you're interested, I think would be my answer to that. Laura, do you have anything to add on that part? No, that's great. Okay. And Ocha, there was a second part of Michael's question. Yeah, the second part is how does an average individual funder get started and where does one find inspiration to be an indie philanthropist? Yeah. Laura, do you want to answer that? Or I can give sure. It well, I mean, I think the first thing is, since indie philanthropy is a lot about collaboration and community, it's about finding peers and joining communities. And actually, this is a good moment to plug. Boulder Giving has this givingcommunities.org resource where you can plug in all kinds of different information about what you're interested in and find out what ex what organizations exist that um, have also other individual funders or institutional funders that are interested in those same things. And um, the IndiePhilanthropy.org site has a bunch of great stories. Um, there's also lots of good information about how to actually get started. Like if you're thinking about that method, here's things to read or here's steps you can take. Um, and then, Ariane, do you want to mention Indie Interactive? Yeah, there's a space on our website, which we'll also link to in the follow-up email called Indie Interactive. And what that is, is if you have 10 minutes and you're really looking to you're interested in any philanthropy, but you're not sure exactly which direction or which method you should start exploring first. It's, it takes about 10 minutes to answer this questionnaire, mostly multiple choice, and then um, automatically our brilliant internet technical systems, I don't think that's the right term, but <laughs> we've built this way that once you fill out this survey, a report is sent to you automatically that gives you an action plan and a bit of a map to begin to look at how you can start practicing any philanthropy within your own context. And that re that's actually a very helpful resource. You can bring it to your staff, your board, um, you know, to your community and say, hey, let's start looking at flow funding because that's what that's the method that seems most aligned with, you know, our values and our goals. So it's a fun thing to play with and it's totally anonymous. So you can you can play with it that way. That's a one tool for you there on the site. Yeah. Great. Thank you. Both. And somebody asks if the session is being recorded. Yes, we're indeed recording the webinar and we'll be sending you the link to the recording in the follow-up email along with the resources that were mentioned on this call. So moving on to our next section, next questions from our participants. Um, Rob wants to ask if can institutional funders practice indie philanthropy and are there any good examples that you could share? Mm. Okay, I'll answer this, but I also just wanted to say, maybe we shouldn't say the names because we said it would be anonymous so that people won't be afraid to type in. <laughs> okay. Um, so this mystery person um, who asked about institutional funders. So I think really, I guess the simplest way to say it is there's two ways institutional funders could engage in indie philanthropy. One would be to adopt some of the values or principles and approaches themselves in what they're doing or to partner with and support indie philanthropy practitioners. So, for example, a private foundation with an endowment can easily find ways to invest outside the box. They could involve community leaders on their board, perhaps, or a grant committee, or they could fund startup organizations, or, you know, or they could spend down. So that would be an example of 
you know, an institutional funder practicing indie philanthropy themselves or, you know, through partnerships by making a substantial contribution to an existing organization. So, uh, for example, Arian talked about IDEX earlier and just, I think it was last month, Novo Foundation made a seven year, I think $2.5 million commitment to IDEX. And, um, that is the largest grant IDEX has ever received in its 30 year history. And, you know, it's awesome that they're making a seven year commitment because IDEX makes these long term commitments to its grantees. So it, um, makes it work that way. So, you know, there are so many organizations like that global green grants. Um, if you wanted to do, uh, you know, environmental funding or Global Fund for Women, so many organizations that a private or an institutional funder could partner with that way. So those are a couple of thoughts. Ariane, anything you want to add? No, that, that's great. Yeah, that's perfect. I just saw, Otar and Laura, this question coming in of what's the relationship or difference between, there, there's a lot of websites that we've mentioned. Somebody absolutely <laughs> noted that. So the question was, what's the relationship or difference between the entities of Boulder Giving versus Indie Philanthropy? And we also have Kindle Project in the mix. So I just wanted to take a moment to tease that out because it's a question I just received the other day from someone as well. So Boulder Giving is its own organization. Kindle Project is its own organization, grant-making organization. And the Indie Philanthropy Initiative is a program of Kindle Project. Does that make sense? With yes. to with which Boulder Giving is a partner and and others, yeah. Yes, and so I know we've thrown a lot of websites and resources out at you, which is part of the reason why we like to do webinars and why we like to engage in person. There's a lot of online materials that we put out there. It's one way. It's a really important way, and we know that the Indie Philanthropy site is very um, content heavy, and so it's available for you to kind of dip in and out of and seek inspiration and resource as you need. And so all of these three websites and these three organizations or three programs work together in that way to try and uh, make that clear to you. I hope that was a helpful response. Yeah, that was great. Thanks, Ariane. Sure. <laughs> Thanks for clarifying that. Um, I know it can get confusing when you have so many different, you know, names in the mix. Uh, actually, the next question is going to come from me, and then we'll move to other questions from participants, is that, how does one manage risk or avoid avoid unintended consequences of indie philanthropy? For example, if you're funding individuals internationally, right? The question that we often get asked is, what about transparency and accountability in funding, and how do you follow up as to where that money will be spent if you're just funding individuals in a country that you're not very familiar with? Yeah, that's a very important question. So I'll take this one, Ariane. Mm-hmm. Is that okay? Um, so, you know, one of the things, we actually use that phrase, like, Indie philanthropy is about funding risk. So in some ways, you could say things are more risky. But actually, um, in, in a lot of ways, these kinds of principles and practices help can help reduce risk, too. And so I guess what I mean by that is, OK, so for example, transparency and accountability are very important. And different levels of accountability are important depending on the size of the grant you're making and the intention behind it. So like when we talked about flow funding, you know, it's not about rigorous metrics and reporting. It's about trust the relationship between the flow funder and the recipient um, and the donor and the flow funder. And also those are small grants. So the risk of harming someone's life or community is much smaller than if you were making a, a large grant that way. And, you know, if you're interested in funding individuals internationally, for example, partnering with an organization, um, like I mentioned, Global Green Grants Fund, for example, or Global Fund for Women, 
um, you know, they've got advisors on the ground in every region where they work who know the ins and outs of the local and regional politics and people can help make sure money is being directed to in, in ways that will be, you know, helpful and not harmful. And I'm thinking one more just in that international example. I mean, in the question that you asked about funding internationally, the um, International Funders for Human Rights organization, I think, just recently interviewed Ariane and about how indie philanthropy is relevant to human rights funders. And, you know, I think one thing you said, Ariane, was that given the very often risky and opaque contexts, you know, globally in which human rights funders and their partners are working, the emphasis on building authentic partnerships that are based on trust, you know, when something goes wrong or communication is difficult, um, you know, projects have to shift radically, whatever, having that long-term trust that's been built is very, very useful. So, and then I think Ariane also mentioned that um, blog post that was just published today on Huffington Post, which was about post-disaster funding in Nepal and how so much post-disaster funding is so disastrous. You know, it's done so poorly and some really key ways that that can be done well. So I guess to make it just to oversimplify, I'd say it's finding people who do know what's going on, you know, partnering with organizations and other people in those countries who know what's going on. That would be the way to do it to mitigate risk. Maybe I'll just add in one thing, if that's okay. Absolutely, go for it. I mean, my my brain is still really in this interview that we just shared on Huffington Post, but in my conversation when I did the interview with Trishala Deb from IDEX, it was so amazing to hear her talk about the partnerships they have in Nepal because it's been over the past 20 years that they've been building those relationships. So building these partnerships, I think, can seem intimidating. Organizations like IDEX, you can contact them. They can refer you where to get the funding, but also... It, you know, when the earthquake happened in Nepal, she said that their, her conversations with her partners on the ground there were five or ten minutes, multiple times. You know, so it's, I think, um, also understanding how partnerships work on a day-to-day level, especially when there's a disaster somewhere, that you can have these quick check-ins. You have already built the trust, so, and you've already built the relationship, so that when something does go wrong, you're so nimble and you can understand that person and respond in that different way, which is a really exciting piece of the puzzle to me that Trishala shared with us in that interview. Great. Hmm. I actually want to mention too, um, Grassroots International, I think they're in Boston these days, um, has also been very involved with IDEX and others doing this really important post-disaster funding Mm -hmm. um, in a a healthy, good way. Sorry. Um, just we have another question from one of the participants around any tips for funders who are unsure how to navigate their board, donors, or legal obstacles to more indie giving. Any advice that yeah, you have there? Yeah, so <laughs> there certainly can be obstacles. And um, so starting with the board, um, so, you know, one possibility is beginning a conversation about effectiveness. Like, um, you know, there's there's something about when you're in business, um, you know, you don't make a product and put it out there in the world without uh, surveying the end users of that product. Like, you got to know that people are going to want it and it's going to be good for them and they're going to buy it. And we don't seem to do that in philanthropy. <laughs> and so some kind of a conversation with board members about effectiveness and the importance of actually um, communicating with the end users of the grant dollars about um, what's actually going to be effective in, in those communities. So that's one possibility. It's like finding the values that exist among your board members and then finding ways to link that with principles and practices of indie philanthropy. 
Um, so, you know, legal obstacles. Certainly, I think people think there are more legal obstacles than there actually are. Like private foundations would say, okay, well, we can't fund individuals. Of course, we have to fund 501c3s. But that's not always true. There are ways to do some individual giving through private foundations and also, again, by partnering with other organizations who have programs who can do that. So um, I guess it so depends. You know, some, some boards and organizations have a transparent, authentic, you know, healthy way of relating with each other and others don't. Maybe it's a family where people don't know how to talk to each other. So I think it's always finding where there's common ground and starting there. So, Ariane, any thoughts from you? No, I think that's you covered that. I think one other thing is just the getting involved with giving communities um, and really hearing from other people who have done something similar, like getting inspired by other people's stories um, can, can help you so you don't have to reinvent the wheel. Like, oh, here are the five steps I did to transform my family foundation from this to this. Great. Um, another question that we got is, um, are some more traditional foundations now experimenting with some indie philanthropy ideas and techniques? And I'm assuming this person is like some of the larger uh, foundations. Any thoughts on that? That's a, that's a great question. We'd love to hear about any examples people know about of larger foundations. So certainly in... Um, you know, some major foundations, certainly through the partnership way of, you know, doing regranting through other organizations. I don't know of any big foundations doing flow funding or um, giving circles or that kind of thing, but it's a great question. We actually, we'd love to hear about more examples. Otar, do you know of any? No, I don't, unfortunately. But well, I think that. some of them have the values down, yeah. you know, so there's sometimes I think um, there's a gap between the values mm -hmm. of an organization and how that comes out in practice, you know? So there, I don't think there's so much of a, a schism in there, but I don't want to like other it too much, but that's just something that I think is worth exploring. And yes, love to hear about those and, and encourage it. Yeah. And I think there is a barrier, even though some board members or particularly staff people might see how giving could be shifted to be more effective and, more supportive of the communities being funded, sometimes it can sort of be like turning a ship, you know, very slowly to to actually make those structural changes mm -hmm. in the foundation. We've gotten a lot of comments and questions, uh, but unfortunately okay. we're we two almost out, out, out of time. Um, however, I will say that feel free to email us and send us your questions and comments and We'll be sure to get back to you. And I also want to remind everyone that today's session was being recorded and you will receive a follow-up email from us sometime early next week with the link to the recording and also some of the resources that were mentioned on this call along with links to the, some of the bold givers that are featured on the Boulder Giving page that fit the criteria, criteria of an indie philanthropist. Um, I mean, we could honestly talk about this for hours. <laughs> um, also, make sure to like Boulder Giving and Kindle Project and Indie Philanthropy on Facebook. We both post a lot of updates there. And please, please do sign up for our newsletters and by going to our website to stay up to date on our monthly complimentary webinars, much like this one. I just want to thank our wonderful speakers for an amazing and very informative session. I know I learned a lot, too, also from, from you, too. And we hope to see you again on one of our webinars. Thanks so much. Thank you, Otar.
Thanks, everyone. Bye.